Hello, this is Kirk Spano with Margin of Safety Investing and Seeking Alpha, and I'm here interviewing Cashflow Hunter today, who has had some very interesting calls over the last year. Uh, he currently works at a hedge fund and is sharing his picks and some of his trades with folks in his service, Cashflow Hunter. And uh, I'd like to welcome him today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So I want to jump right in here with banks. You had a short on SVB about three or four months before it tanked. A lot of people noticed that, especially when it got into the news. Why don't we do a quick review of that before we move into a whole bunch of other exciting topics? Why don't you break down how you had an idea that it was going to have some problems? So I was uh, following Bitcoin's demise last year pretty carefully. And uh, when FTX blew up, I was looking for uh, what the some of the fallout from that would be. And I saw that they had a very large account at Silvergate. And I said, OK, that's that's bad um, for Silvergate. Um, and Silvergate also had a, an exchange network for trading uh, cryptocurrencies, which I thought would also decline in value. So we we're actually I was actually short Silvergate. And I started looking around, and one of the one of the things that was good about Silvergate as a short is that they'd had this very rapid growth in deposits thanks to that um, that that cryptocurrency exchange network. Not only were they going to lose a deposit from uh, from FTX, you know, I thought that they could lose a lot of deposits coming out of this crypto exchange network. And what they had done with that rapid growth in deposits, when I say rapid growth, I think they'd gone from like two billion in deposits to 14 billion over the course of like two years or something like you know insane growth and in deposit base for a bank they bought mortgages mortgage-backed securities um and they bought duration and so with the increase in interest rates that had occurred by the time ftx blew up you had quite a bit of loss in that mortgage portfolio which if they were forced to monetize was going to create problems because the losses uh, exceeded book value. So I said, all right, well, let me see if there's anyone else like this. And lo and behold, uh, Silvergate, I, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank, I, I still get those guys confused, uh, are, uh, was basically the same thing. You had this massive ramp in US venture investing uh, between 2000 and call it the end of 2018 and the end of 2021 and Silicon Valley Bank's deposit base went bananas and it went bananas with uh with startup companies who burn cash and by the end of 2022 the venture backed business uh venture backed uh investment had uh declined quite a bit so these were companies that had there were cash flow, there were loss-making companies, companies that burned cash, that their deposits uh, were going to start shrinking just organically. And uh, Silicon Valley Bank had made uh, the same mistake that Silvergate had made in that rather than investing this very quick ramp of deposits into short-dated, highly liquid securities, uh, they went out an extra like eight years or nine years on the duration curve for an extra 40 basis points of yield. And because of the their duration and their hold of maturity portfolio, 
that uh and they also had in their available for sale portfolio they had a lot of losses and the losses there were going to uh basically wiped out book value if they ever had to be monetized crystallized um and the other but the, you had another shot on goal with silicon valley bank which i really liked from the short perspective and and you want to try to have as many shots on goal with shorts as, as possible because one might not always play out so fast and so the other shot on goal was that they had a loan portfolio that was 70 billion dollars 21 percent of what of which was to startup companies or early stage companies and i thought in the in the new uh dynamic of the venture lending or venture funding world that those loans could be uh very uh, impaired if not zeros and so 21 percent of 71 of 70 billion is right around 15 billion dollars or 14 and a half billion dollars and so uh that would have wiped, wiped out book value too so i said oh wow you actually have two potential losses to wipe out book value here i actually thought the loan the losses in the loan book were going to come out faster than the losses in the hold of maturity portfolio would be recognized but you started having a bank run and once um and and, and that was precipitated by the company actually is is you know the deposits started bleeding and they had to sell their available for sale securities and the available for sale securities they sold they took a a, a very big loss in i think it was a billion eight and that billion eight was a 15 percent impairment to book value and they did a very stupid attempt to finance that with an equity raise that they didn't get committed and so uh by the time they they woke up the next morning after they announced that the stock was already down 25 percent, and then it just built on itself very very quickly uh so um it was a very hard short to hold on to from uh an equity perspective because when i first wrote about it i think the stock was right around 210 uh they they missed badly on the they're reporting their fourth quarter in, in january but i think you know a lot of people expected them to miss badly and then they didn't miss badly enough or whatever or they they talked a good game uh for the for 2023 which i knew was baloney but uh the stock went up to 330. so i actually had options that went to heaven uh to my credit i reloaded on them and uh but the other part of the short where i made significantly more money was being short the bonds we were able to short the bonds at uh bonds traded spread over treasuries investment grade bonds traded spread over treasuries so they were trading at two percent over the 10-year the 10-year bonds and that was in the context where bank of america was trading about 1.7 percent over the 10 years so that 30 basis points of diff of of, of, of yields of spread difference 0.3 uh, you know 30 basis points that equaled about three points uh difference and so i said okay well if this thing trades to bank of america's spread i can lose three points and that was you know i shorted the bonds at 92 points and i covered them at 41 points so risking three points to make 50 was a very very compelling risk reward trade Right, you're looking for the asymmetry there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in in bond language, you call that negative convexity. Right. So, <clears throat> we were also short Silvergate uh, last year, and got to be honest, uh, I don't even remember who it was that put us onto that. It was somebody on Twitter that hated it, and my trader 
started looking into it because I'm a registered guy. So I'm basically long only, but you know, in the chat rooms, we can talk shorts and mm-hmm. Silvergate was one of the shorts that they put on and that worked out pretty well. We were looking for other banks to short. Our question was how fast could things happen? And, you know, because being short is not just being accurate, but you have to be precise with shorts, right? Because it's expensive to short. It can be. Uh, you, you know, one of the things about shorting is is you really have to see. You, a, you, I think you want to have more than one shot on goal right. in terms of what's gonna what's gonna potentially hurt the company. Two, you have to be very careful about the company having something that can come along that can just rip the stock much higher. Right. And three, you need to have a catalyst. Uh, a short, relatively short dated catalyst that's going to play out, that's going to destroy, that's going to hurt the value. It's going to be value destructive. And so, yeah, that's, that, that's, that speaks to your point. You have to, uh, you have to see it coming. You know, one of the things that I tell investors all the time is don't short a good company just because you think it's a little overvalued. Yeah. You can't short on valuation. Valuation shorts are killers. Right. And, and I tell them that over and over again, because well, the way that I put it is that there's so many shit stocks out there, short shit stocks. You don't have to go out and say, well, I think Apple is overvalued, so I'm going to short it. I mean, that's just a horrible trade. And and and, and we have to repeat this over and over again. You know, we get new subscribers every month. Yeah. So, you know, it's a lesson that we have to repeat. And, you know, if you forget to repeat it often enough, somebody goes and does it and then they yell at you. So we have to be careful. Yeah, the, the operative word is catalyst. And that's why I named my investment group Catalyst Hedge Investing to make sure that, you know, because I, I, I like shorting. Uh, I'm fairly good at it. And I, uh, but you have to have the catalyst there. Maybe you'll end up being the big short guy on a, <laughs> on a seeking alpha. I think I might um, already be one of the few. There aren't too many people who write short articles on this site. No, well, I tell you, I have, and I get I get yelled at for it. So you know, it, it's not easy to be a short because the longs no, the longs yeah, will really they, take you to task. They they do, uh, and frankly, I actually I like. I like when I write shorter articles, I like to hear the other side. I think that's that's, it's actually one of the main reasons why I write these articles at all is to is to hear the other side. Um, And, you know, you know, you're on to something when uh, the 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 people are coming after you and they're just telling you oh you're an idiot and you say okay well explain to me why i'm why i'm an idiot and right, they just say right. oh it's just a great company and you're like i say okay well just give me a tell me where i'm wrong you know tell me tell me what is what i'm missing in my thesis and if they can't right. do that then you know that you're potentially onto something right so for folks who haven't picked up on it yet um, Cashflow Hunter and I are both uh, Xers, and uh, and one of the traits of Xers apparently is that we have pretty thick skin because we had to figure out a lot of stuff on our own in life, and and so whenever I come across another Xer, I know that there's going to be some things that get pretty interesting because talking to other generations, you know, every generation has their own traits that, you know, become a little stereotypical, but you know, us latchkey kids, you could tell us we're stupid or anything else. 
Uh, but just tell us why we would appreciate that. So let's move on from Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate and and how you thought about those short investments and and catalysts. By the way, I use the word catalysts all the time because it's important not only managing an investment but managing psychology. If the investor knows that this is what we're looking for, they can conceptualize it and they'll patiently wait it out, right? You know, when people don't understand what could be coming in this and a stock price maybe moves against them, sometimes they do the wrong thing because they don't know, well, this domino and this domino and this domino could all tip in this particular time frame. So I, I think it's important to use the word catalyst because you know if you're looking for more than a grinded out gain, right? If you're really looking to have alpha, you have to understand what the catalysts are. And then roughly the time frame that they could play out. Yeah, I mean, look, there there are certain, particularly with law. I mean, I, I catalysts are are incredibly important for shorts. They little they're a little bit less important with longs. I mean, with longs you can just find wonderful franchises managed by really competent people, and then just sit back and let them do what they're going to do, create value for you every day. You know, you, my favorite longs. I you could I you want to hold them forever because they're great businesses managed by great people who compound. Uh, compound capital at, at high rates. Well, right. So great franchises are typically tied to great management. Typically, yeah. And, and we talked about that off the air. So that's something that I think people should always keep in mind. If if you think the management doesn't know what they're doing, take some time to explore that idea because you might be right. Uh, there, there's a Warren Buffett quote about that too, right? Yeah. Well, he said, uh, it's actually, it's if, if you have a, a a business with a bad reputation, meaning a management with a good reputation, the business will often win. <laughs> so you don't want to you don't want to buy a bad franchise that's managed by a great person. And and the real man- magic happens is when you find a great fa- franchise managed by a, a really competent man. Right, right. I, and I think that Apple has been the poster child company for that for a long time. All right. So let's just talk about the banking sector in general. It's going to tighten up. We don't know exactly how much. It has has tightened up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I wrote an article about that, um, which actually for a macro article, got a decent amount of reading about it. But there is um, a survey put out that uh, I never really paid that much attention to before, but I um, economist uh, pointed it out to me was the senior loan officer survey and um it's it's starting the you know senior loan officers particularly at regional banks are responsible for an awful lot of liquidity and credit availability in this country particularly for small and medium-sized businesses and to the extent that they start saying hey we're lending less I think it has been predictive of the last six recessions going back to the 60s. Well, yeah, that's uh, something that I've been following as well. Uh, as, I, as I told you off air, I, I consult to some private equity firms and we've been looking at notes and properties in, well, I was just in San Francisco and it seems that the banks are going to get really tight here because the regional banks uh, actually provided a lot of the funding for a lot of the construction in the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And a big batch of those loans are due this year and next year. And the value of the properties 
is way below what's owed on the properties. So, you know, you're seeing properties in big cities, Chicago, San Francisco, all over the place. Because the uh, vacancy rates are, are so high, I, I believe record highs, uh, they can't get the rents, which means that the value of the property is lower. You know, how are they going to refinance those notes without actually having to actually do a lot of work on the property to convert it somehow. So we're looking at that right now. Do you think that the impact is going to be that it pushes us into recession and affects a lot of other things? Or do you think that the banks muddle through with assistance from the Fed and we try to stay close to even on lending? Or or do you really see lending tailing off quite a bit for a little while? I think uh, lending will, it has tapered off. I think it will not rebound so fast. A lot of banks are going to be reluctant to lend until they really feel stability within their uh, deposit base, which could happen sooner rather than later. But even if it does happen sooner, I don't think banks are going to be so fast to lend uh, because the cost of deposits is still very high with an inverted yield curve relative to what they can lend to. So your their net interest margins are getting squeezed pretty hard. And, and that is coming right into this debt ceiling, which I think that people misunderstand. We're not going to default on the U.S. debt. However, once the debt ceiling gets raised, that's a lot of liquidity that the Fed has to raise. That's where the government checkbook is. And that means that a lot of money is going to flow out of other places. So we're going to see tight liquidity from replenishing the government checkbook this summer and into the end of the year, something to the tune of five, six, seven hundred billion dollars. And the banks, you know, they've got a trillion dollar headache from the commercial loans. I agree. So we could potentially see way over a trillion dollars of tightening in the economy. Well, that, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there is a big deal. Yeah, I, I agree. I And, you know, it's, you touched on the commercial real estate market. There, There's an awful lot of, of, of loans that are coming due that haven't come due yet. And they are, it, they're, they're going to be problematic. It's not, and it's not just office buildings, although it, a lot of the, the real pain is going to be the major, major write-offs are going to be in office buildings on a percentage basis. Um, but I think, look, there is an awful lot of, of fairly crappy uh, garden, uh, class A, quote unquote, your, that depends on your definition of class A, a garden apartment communities that were built an hour outside of Atlanta or other Sunbelt states uh, or other Sunbelt cities that are were financed at 70 to 80 percent loan to value. And those trades could be underwater fairly quickly. And I, a lot of people are not talking about the potential losses that much in, in multifam. And there is, look, there's also an awful lot of, of warehouses and distribution centers that were, that were bought or, con- or constructed uh, during the COVID, post-COVID surge. And if the economy slows down, those things will not be able to realize rents that will support their debt, particularly when the the buildings were built at incredibly low cap rates and they were financed at incredibly low interest rates. And so if the rents don't materialize and the interest rates are higher on the loans, you can have pretty material, material uh, losses. 
And I don't know if you follow, but, uh, you know, Sam Zell yep. died past yeah. week. Yeah. And I actually, I, I met Sam uh, my senior year in college. He came to, uh, I went to Wharton for college and he, he spoke at a real estate conference and he was very good friends of a professor of mine. So we, we had some time to, to meet, to speak, to speak with him. And he, he offered, someone asked him, you know, do you have pieces of advice for us as, you know, going out into the world? And he just said, he had two rules. He said, don't buy at auction and don't buy outdated office space. <laughs> and I, I, I never forgotten those two rules of Sam. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the office building in, in San Francisco when we were talking offline. I, I don't know what that what that's worth. Uh, what, what is a, a circa 1970s office building in San Francisco worth right now? I have no idea. I mean, this one was built in the last decade that we were talking about, but it's okay. going to have to be, you know, I, I forget how many stories it is, 50 stories, give or take. I mean, it's a bigger building in San Francisco, and they're going to have to make it two-thirds residential. Well, that's a huge remodel. And, you know, one of the things that people don't always remember about office buildings is the plumbing's not set up for, you know, having eight condos on a floor, <laughs> you know. So that's that's nope. not cheap. <laughs> and that's one of the things that the private equity firms who are in family offices I talk to, you know, they, they look for investments. And... You know, they're very savvy when it comes to, you know, what is this really going to cost us to redevelop? And, you know, there's huge money in real estate redevelopment. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, we've had a president of the United States who did that for a living. And, uh, you know, you have to be careful how you buy. I'll take this all the way down to the other end, too. My daughter, who owns a salon, and and myself, I've been talking to her for a year about, you know, looking at commercial properties rather than renting her space. And there was a strip mall for sale near me in a suburb of Milwaukee uh, that was had a, had a sticker price of $1.5 million. Well, it would cost way over $2 million all day long to build this thing, but they had a couple vacancies. The note was, was under stress. And we went in there and said, yeah, we'll buy it for $1.5 million. We're probably getting it for a half a million dollars off, maybe a million dollars off. And we only didn't get it because somebody with a, a checkbook big enough to write a cash offer, you know, got it and we would have needed financing. So, you know, for investors out there, I would say, you know, depending on what your goals are and whether or not you're interested in, in real estate investing, it's going to be a very interesting market for the next couple of years, I think, as everything resets. Uh, one of the articles that I have in development is called The Great Normalization. I really don't believe that the Fed is doing anything wrong. I think that they're just trying to normalize things and, you know, you read the article if you're interested, but I'll tell you, I think that uh, Cashflow Hunter might find another short out there at some point, maybe in a REIT or something real estate related, I guess. Yeah, I've, I've been looking. They're, it's hard to find the ones that are with the catalyst, like you said, although, you know, the good news is, very few REITs ever triple on or double on you. Right. So in short, it is not so, so high risk. Yeah. On most of the REITs, I'm taking what I call a munger, just too, just too hard to invest in. Yeah, it is. They're, they're very hard. I agree. Right. For, for people who didn't get that reference, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, often says, look, there's just things out there that are too hard to figure out. So we skip them. 
And, and that's how I yeah. feel about most of the REITs. It's just too hard to figure out what the risk really is. Um, there's only like five, six REITs I really like right now. And uh, I stick with those. So the rest of them, I think, are just, they're, they're hard. They're really hard. So let's move on to a company that Cashflow Hunter likes called Iris Energy. And there's a Bitcoin connection here, big Bitcoin connection, obviously. Why don't you tell us about Iris Energy, why you like it, yeah. and how it even acts as kind of contrary to your general opinion on, on Bitcoin or, you know, tie in your thoughts on Bitcoin. Because I thought it was a really interesting article. Yeah, I mean, look, I... Uh... I'm an old school, I'm a bond trader by or by training. I'm a value guy by training and by craft. Um, I guess I'm a bond trader by craft still too. Every part of my being is just looks for cash flow streams, um, hence cash flow hunter, and or real concrete asset values that are time tested and Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency has neither, right? So uh, I have had a healthy skepticism, I would say, of of Bitcoin for for quite a while. I they I've watched in horror, frankly, at seeing the these altcoins, uh, which have a different moniker that is not for polite society. But we, we we used it with regards to stocks earlier. Yeah, <laughs> that whole crypto bro culture just just irritates me. I would say maybe I'm just a cranky Gen Xer, as you said. Hey, let, let me let me let me jump in there for a second. I don't think it's cranky. I think that Gen X, for a lot of generational reasons, I think that we developed very good bullshit detectors. That that might be true, yeah. Uh, and look, I, I just say that, that that bullshit detector has served me well throughout my uh, career. I started my, I came out of college in in the late '90s, just as the dot com boom was coming on full steam, and I just was looking at these companies, you know, trading on the valuation of eyeballs. Remember that 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 valuation metric? Yep. And. Yep. Um, you know, I, I sidestepped a lot of that, frankly, shorted quite a bit of those things. And so that was my first trial by fire. And then uh, I really made the bull, the my first real money in this business, uh, being at a hedge fund that had the big short on. And it was not something that we just said, okay, let's get short the housing market in 2007. I was starting to get pretty skeptical about the housing market in 2002. Um, and we started putting on uh, the big short in size in 2005. So we we were I I've, I watched that movie, The Big Short. I read the book, obviously. I, I actually I know a lot of those people. I've spoken to a lot of those people in that movie. And so I kind of lived that space. So I guess that just sort of says I, my healthy skepticism slash bullshit, bullshit detector has served me well throughout my career. And um you know, I would say that a lot of Bitcoin, a lot of Bitcoin traits follow that. That said, and I wrote this in the in the Iris article, an awful lot has been thrown at Bitcoin over the past two years, um, and it's still there. It's still hanging out at twenty five thousand dollars per coin. Now. I, I think it's very, very difficult, even for the truest believer of Bitcoin, 
to really point to concrete intrinsic value of Bitcoin. Now, a lot of people say, well, yeah, you can say the same thing about gold. And it's not really the same thing because there are, you know, there are a lot of people who want to wear gold jewelry. Nobody wants to wear Bitcoin jewelry, right? I mean, there is a practical use for gold. And so, uh, and it's been a store of value for 5,000 years. So they're not really the same. But again, like I said, an awful lot's been thrown at Bitcoin and it's still with us. And so my other gripe with, with Bitcoin is the franchises that have been established to for people to invest in Bitcoin and bet on Bitcoin are, in my opinion, just horrific. I mean, they're just terrible, terrible structures. I think Coinbase is a ridiculous business model that's that had a, a moment in time where it could arbitrage an inefficiency in the marketplace. Um, and that time has generally gone. Now it's basically just earning interest on USDC and for the most part. That's how it's making a lot of its money. Um, other than ripping off people on too high of commissions on, on, on cryptocurrency trades. Um, and then MicroStrategy is just an, an over-levered underwater bet on Bitcoin that was perpetrated by a guy who's had a software company that he hasn't been able to grow for 20 years. And this is a Hail Mary pass. I have followed Michael Saylor a very long time uh, just because he's been a purported rock star a couple different times. Yeah. You know, and I started in the middle 90s. I've never been able to figure out why he's newsworthy. You know, he's not a big deal from what I can tell. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he was a hot shot when he's got started. But I haven't seen anything particularly credible from him in a long time. And I say that as a guy who's been convinced that Bitcoin is a thing. Our thesis three, four years ago, and especially in 2021, was that most of the altcoins would go to zero. A handful of the project-based coins that are going to be around and are getting adopted by the banking system and the financial system will stick around. You know, Ethereum, you know, Ripple, a couple others, Chainlink. And, you know, they all have roles with big banks and World Bank and yeah. IMF, things like that. And then Bitcoin, we look at as part of a geopolitical argument that the emerging markets and a lot of our enemies... And even our frenemies, they want to hedge against the dollar. And Bitcoin is part of that, along with the new brick currency and things like that. So if they adopt it, if they adopt it, it'll go much higher. If they don't adopt it, it's a gambling token. Yeah, so I, I, I agree. Uh, I guess my, my point is, is look, I, I can be a skeptic of Bitcoin all I want. The fact of the matter is it's still around. There are people who value it a certain way and who am i to say that they're wrong right so um that said i want to have so i'm i'm not going to give up on my short short leanings on coinbase and microstrategy but you can't just sit there being short without you know basically affect those things trade with bitcoin right bitcoin goes up those things go up and they and they often go up right uh you know one and a half beta to bitcoin so you're looking for a pair trade. Looking for a pair trade. And uh, Iris is, look, Iris has a lot of the virtues that I look for. Um, they have a clean balance sheet, unlike Coinbase and unlike MicroStrategy. 
they have what I consider to be a really interesting and capable management team. Again, unlike Bitcoin, unlike uh, Coinbase, unlike MicroStrategy. And they have a pretty simple business that has some uh, structural advantages. And uh, that comes from uh, renewable power, renewable cheap power contracts. So to the extent that Bitcoin can uh, trade above, I think I estimated about $18,000 a coin. These guys are going to make some really good money every day. And they don't make any bets. They sell the Bitcoin as soon as they mine it. They And so, yeah, so it's a really natural pair. And to be honest, I actually kind of like the business enough that I don't even need to have the short on against it. It's, and if you look at it versus everything else in the crypto space, be it Coinbase or MicroStrategy or other miners, uh, it's just night and day in terms of its capital structure, in terms of its management team, and frankly, I think in the terms of it, in terms of its economics. So um, you know, I I like it. And the other the the last thing is, uh, I do believe that they uh, their data centers are uh, new enough and good enough that if Bitcoin disappeared tomorrow, they'd be able to repurpose those assets for something. Now, would you, would, would you get, you know, uh, $4 a share of value? That's hard to say. It's entirely possible that you could get more. Uh, but it's not a zero. Whereas I think that MicroStrategy is potentially just a zero, right? If Bitcoin is underwater, when their debt comes due, it's a zero. Right. We have invested in Marathon, similar thesis as okay. as this, um, a little bit riot, but we, we really pivoted to Marathon. I like Marathon better, uh, but Iris Energy Marathon, if you go to the Iris Energy uh, presentation, investor presentation, they have a really good chart in there that shows uh, all these miners and what their debt is and, and, and you know, what they're generating. So it, it's, I, I will say for folks, you should read this article, the Iris Energy article that he put out um, and then go read the presentation and, you know, the, the Q, the 10Q, um, because like I said, I've been in Marathon and I'm going to look at this one now because I like what they've done. These guys have a net cash balance sheet, whereas Marathon still has that big convert coming up. Right, right. So Marathon, when Bitcoin prices crashed, they got a little over their skis and they had to finance their way out. And that's going to work against them on the, I guess, the margin side would be the way to describe it, right? Yeah. So you have to pay off their bills. So this one being, you know, debt free. And I look at this and I go, well, if you want to be long a company that's in this space that has some residual value if Bitcoin, you know, disappears, this is an interesting idea to me. It really, it really is. I, I, I'm, I'm going to look into this one because it may be an improvement on the one that I've been playing with. Yeah, I, I put a comp table in, in the, in the uh, article so you can see that this is on almost pretty much every metric. This is cheaper than most other miners. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. All right. So you have a high conviction trade going on in 3M right now. So why don't we pivot yeah. on over there? I know that we've talked a lot of financials. Let's let's get into industry. Sure. So uh this was 
uh, I was actually kind of blown away by the uh, feedback that this article got. It got like, I think over 40,000 page views, something like that, which is pretty high. So um, 3M, again, a story that checks a lot of boxes. Um, it is a business where they have four different segments and all, three of them actually had negative organic revenue in the first quarter. The one business that they had that was positive organic revenue uh, had 1% or, or organic revenue growth. And that's their healthcare business, which they were talking about spinning off in uh, the fourth quarter, first quarter of next year. But um, with 3M, you have two shots on goal of value destruction here. Uh, the first, which I think we're probably going to get some sort of resolution on in relatively short order, is uh, they owned, they bought a company that uh, provided earplugs to the military that just didn't work. And so you have over 200,000 veterans with hearing damage. So that's, you know, just, it's just a terrible, it's a terrible thing to happen to our people who are serving our country. Um, it's, and it's just politically, that's, that's a disaster, right? I mean, who's going to say, oh yeah, you know, well, screw the veterans, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? So the, the company is saying they've been trying all these different legal maneuvers. They were trying to bankrupt the subsidiary, which is something that Johnson Johnson tried to do with their talc liabilities. I, I think it, that 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 maneuver was blocked by a, uh, a lower court judge. It's, it's in front of an appellate court uh, panel of judges right now. They are likely to uphold the lower court decision. If that happens, and, and that's going to happen, I believe, in the next few weeks, then the company is going to have to negotiate some sort of settlement. They have initially said, oh, well, it's, we'll pay $5,000 a person. Well, $5,000 a person is a, a, a billion dollars. $5,000 for hearing damage? I mean, there's just no way that that's, that that is going to fly, right? It sounds like they might need to add a zero. Uh, that's my that's my take, exactly. I, I think it's probably most more like between, I think 50 is probably the low end. And a hundred thousand per person is probably the higher end. So we're talking between ten and twenty billion dollars potential liability. Now, I think there's people on the sell side who are estimating five to six thousand. If it comes through at five to six thousand in terms of a settlement, that'll oddly be considered a win. But that will blow out right. that that destroys their their free cash for a year. It's just gone. And right. So in another in another life, very early in my career, I sold a lot of insurance. And people who have benefit plans at work or are familiar with AFLAC or anything, you know, the benefit that you would collect on an insurance policy for losing your hearing or your sight or anything yeah. like that, way over five thousand dollars. Yeah, it's just five thousand. It's just uh, just give me a break. I mean, <laughs> so. Um, I mean, most people's annual grocery bills are significantly higher than five thousand dollars, right? Uh -huh. So I've, got, I've gotten fat the last decade since I quit playing competitive sports, so <laughs> I can attest to that. So, uh, so that's and frankly, that's that's just this. That's a small thing that's coming after 3M. The the big thing are these uh, they're polyfluoroalkyls, PFAS, where otherwise known as forever chemicals, uh, forever chemicals, and it's um, the stuff that was in Scotchgard. Uh, but the real pollutive 
application was in a fire suppressing foam. So, you know, stuff that just got sold to fire departments all over the country, got sprayed around and just went into the groundwater. So there is a multi-district litigation that's being handled in South Carolina. There is the first lawsuit uh, under that multi-district litigation is occurring uh, starting June 5th. It's the city of Stewart, Florida, um, suing 3M. So there there are a couple of things with that case. Um, One is it's just one out of like 4,000 potential litigants. So it's if there's going to be a settlement, it's going to have to occur somewhere either before or after that case um, happens. But I think that the fact, the facts that are going to come out in that case are going to be pretty damaging to 3M in terms of what they knew when. That's always that. That's frequently sort of a a, a a nasty thing for them. And that and that's what triggers punitive damages a lot of time. Right. And so 3M actually uh, already settled with the Twin Cities uh, for $850 million. One one metropolitan area with pollution for these PFAS, $850 million. So, um, you know, there are people saying, oh, well, 3M will just settle for like $10 billion. And um, my answer is, well, they just, they settle for three, the, three, the, the Twin Cities for 850 and I'm not saying that every city is going to be the size of the Twin Cities, but there are an awful lot of cities that are suing these guys. The other, but the real headshot that could come, regardless of what happens with these lawsuits or any kind of settlement from these lawsuits, is that the EPA has put forth two potential, two things. One is the acceptable level of PFAS in groundwater. Uh, they put out a, a regulatory proposal in March of four parts per trillion. That's generally regarded as safe content of, of, of PFAS in drinking water. Most places right now are 70 parts. The, the delta from 70 to four potentially is going to cost like 300 to $500 billion to clean up. I mean, it, the numbers are staggering. So, um, and then the EPA is also trying to get PFAS labeled as a hazardous material. If they get the hazardous material designation and the four parts per trillion regulation becomes law, then any water system that has more than four parts per trillion becomes a Superfund site, in which case the EPA becomes judge during executioner. And there's no, there's, there's no trial. There's no appeal. The EPA says, this is a Superfund site. You guys made the chemicals that are in the Superfund site. Pay us. It's a fine. And there's no appeal. I mean, it's like appealing the IRS. You can't do it, right? It just doesn't happen. So um, I think that's the true headshot. And that is what comes through almost regardless of what happens with any of these cases in South Carolina. But uh, you're going to start seeing, I think, uh, some pretty nasty stuff coming out of South Carolina. And um, I think the best possible situation for 3M is that they settle the uh this litigation this multi-district litigation for like 30 billion dollars and they do it over 30 years so it's a billion dollars a year for 30 years i think that's really unlikely but that's probably the best possible situation that can happen to these guys and again you're talking about you know a billion dollars of annual expense on 
uh, $8 billion of EBITDA and $4 billion of free cash. So it's going to be material. It's going to be material not to the company. And that would come on top of the earplugs. Um, but I, I think it's a really hot, really high likelihood that, you know, this thing spirals over the next two years and 3M's forced into bankruptcy. I've talked about a lot of dividend companies that I thought were zombies and 3M has been on that list and I've gotten yeah. chastised for it. I would just challenge any dividend investor who's looking at their dividend with, uh, with 3M and I would ask you, what do you think the risk is that they have to cut their dividend? And, and I wrote about that in, in the write-up. I said, look, I, if you own this for a dividend, the dividend is, is really not safe. No, it's not safe at all. And there's a bunch of other companies in the S&P 500, but I think this one's compelling for its immediacy. They're going to have to cut that dividend. And there, there's, in my mind, there's almost no way that dividend stays intact. And when they cut it, you just saw what happened to Paramount Global and what happened to AT&T a while back. You want to maybe own those companies okay. after the dividend cut, you know, for the rebound in the stock price over time but probably not too quickly. Right. And you sure as heck don't want to own those stocks going into the dividend cut because you're going to lose a lot of value. I agree a thousand percent. And you know, the, the joke of the matter is frankly, is that the, you know, they want to do this spinoff of their healthcare business because they think that that would unlock a lot of value. And, and I walked through in the article how that wouldn't actually be the case, but if they do spin off the healthcare business, the dividend's almost going to have to be cut if they do that. Now, this this set the spun out healthcare business might what might pay a dividend, but you know how many people add up the the dividends in the two different com- companies and say, okay, well, I'm still okay, right? That usually doesn't happen. Well, and a similar thing happened to AT and T when they spun off Warner, right? They yeah. lost all that revenue from Warner, so they had to cut their dividend, and people, you know, they lost their minds, but. AT&T is a much healthier company now because of it. However, you know, people always look back and they're just so angry that they can't right. see that AT&T is a better company now than it was before. I agree 100%. So, yeah. So, look, I, I think and, and that dividend cuts another shot on goal with 3M. So you have really three shots on goal there. Um, and, and again, there's nothing there that's going to really rip the thing up in your face. Um, and once again, you know, we own, I own uh, longer dated puts in 3M, um, which are cheap because it's it's a low volatility company, so th- there's not much volatility pressed into the into the into the puts. But uh, we're also short the uh, bonds in in pretty good size, and I think that's again a, an incredibly wonderful risk reward comp- uh, trade. Um, all right, let's finish up because uh, I know we both have places to go on a Saturday. Uh, that's that's when we're recording, folks. Uh, let's finish up with energy. Everybody loves talking about energy. And let's take a look at some of the pipeline companies in particular. You like Enterprise Products Partners. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I with longs, you just want to buy, you know, really, if possible, irreplaceable assets or irreplaceable franchises. I mean, nothing, I guess, is really irreplaceable at the end of the day, but uh, for the most part, uh, I think energy uh, enterprise products um, has irreplaceable assets that have become only more irreplaceable as the uh, environmental uh, and permitting process has become more unfriendly to, uh, to pipe 
um, and it's become more expensive to from a labor and materials um, perspective to build pipelines. Um, and these guys, they connect to every major refinery, every major cracker uh, on west of the Mississippi. And they also own the bulk of the natural gas liquids export infrastructure at the port of Houston, which is um, you know where a lot of the uh, domestically produced natural gas liquids, such as propane and ethane, really mainly propane is what gets exported, um, are um, uh, are delivered. And uh, people don't really realize this, but uh, an awful lot of propane gets exported in this country, goes to China and India, and um, that that business is just going to keep growing. And you know these guys own fifteen hundred acres right on the port of Houston. So unless you think there's going to be another major deep water port built anywhere close to the the major energy infrastructure of this country, um, these guys have really phenomenal, phenomenal assets, and they're managed very, very well um, with very good, steady, you know, mid to low to mid teens uh, returns on invested capital, and 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 they can just. You don't want to, you know, you know as well as I do. You don't want to just find an enterprise that um, is a one-trick pony and say, okay, well, they can build a, they can build a facility, and they can build a facility at fifteen percent returns. And once they build that facility, well, I don't know if they can build another one. These guys can just continually invest at high rates of return. And you, I mean, that's just a phenomenal, phenomenal and a very rare um, asset base. And the, the funny thing to me is that these businesses all trade cheaper than they did pre-COVID, even though they've probably gotten better and more valuable. So I, I have a similar thesis with Kinder Morgan. And, you know, I, I like where they're located, right? They're very Texas um, because of their Permian assets that they've built out. They made a pivot after 2014 when the Saudis flooded the market with oil. They made a pivot to stop building anything on spec. If they don't have backing financing from a sponsor of some sort, they won't build it anymore. So they're doing the same thing as these guys is, look, if we can't get a high rate of return, we just won't build it. You know, We're not going to guess that we're going to get a client sometime or you know a partner down the road. They're Look, if you want us to build it, we'll build it and we'll run it. And enterprise product partners, their product mix, you know, you know, with the liquids. I don't think people always differentiate between oil and gas and LNG and, and the no, fuels. Yeah. You know, you, what you really want to be heavy in is everything but oil, right? So oil is yeah. not the most profitable one. It's the liquids in particular and the fuels and 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 carbon capture, which we're about to talk about a little bit um, that's yep. coming. So I like enterprise product partners too, Kinder Morgan. Um, you know, a lot of the other pipeline companies I'm not always in love with because they're too oil heavy for me. Uh, and I don't like the regions that they serve uh, because as we know, yeah. it's really only the Permian that shows any growth anymore among the fracking regions. So, you know, folks should be careful about who they're picking out uh, and not just look at the yield first. Look at the business behind the yield. All right. So carbon capture. 
I'm huge on this. Yeah. I have a huge trade on this right now out in California, but it's not the one that you like in California. So why don't you tell me about California Resources Corporation? Yeah, so I, I've, I've written about California Resources in the past. It, it's stock really hasn't gone anywhere, <laughs> um, but uh, it's developed. The, the the story is developing uh, much as I had hoped. Um, so California Resources was the original assets that formed Occidental Petroleum. It was spun out in two thousand and about a decade ago. Twelve, I think. Yeah, somewhere around there. With way too much debt, they spun out with like five billion dollars of debt, and uh, they filed for bankruptcy. It was unsupportable uh, capital structure, and they filed for bankruptcy. I think in two thousand twenty, if I'm not wrong, if I'm not mistaken, and they merged in two thousand twenty one with a, a clean balance sheet, um, very little debt, and as an as just an, an exploration and production company, it's a nice little asset. Um, California is a nice little protected market. California still, with all of their energy um, efficiency um, uh, initiatives and their green initiatives, it still consumes 10% of the world's, of the country's oil and only produces 4%. So a lot of California's oil, uh, since there are no oil pipelines going into California, has to be imported either from Atlanta, either from Alaska or from uh, OPEC. So uh, California Resources is uh, has a very low depletion uh, oil wells. They also produce natural gas liquids, uh, propane, and and natural gas, and they have a really protected market. So it's a really nice little business from that perspective. And really, all you're paying for right now is that business. They also, though, I think the really interesting angle is they have these caverns from that are they, uh, Occidental Petroleum was founded, I think, in the 20s or 30s by J. Paul Getty. Um, and um, it was uh, it was um, I, maybe it wasn't Getty, <laughs> but I, it was founded in the 20s. And so these caverns are, are very deep. They're 10,000 feet down. They're surrounded by very hard, non-porous rock, and they're empty. And they it's, well, they formerly held oil and gas um, without leaking it. And so the idea is that they you can now pump carbon dioxide out of um, from refineries or factories or some, all kinds of sorts into these caverns, and it becomes carbon capture. And um, I think these are the types of businesses that gain huge valuations because they're very high return on capital. And the company partnered with Brookfield Infrastructure, where Brookfield Infrastructure is going to put up all the capital to develop these caverns for uh, carbon capture. And the old CEO, the original CEO of, of California Resources, who, the guy who was CEO when they emerged, um, just be left the California Resources CEO job to become CEO of what they call this carbon terra vault business. And they are waiting for a permit to come through from the EPA to start this business. And it's probably only about six months away that they'll get this permit. And once they do, um, I think this entire business revalues in a very, very major way. They're talking about having the initial application for a million tons, but going up to like 5 million tons of uh, carbon capture cap um, capacity in three years. 
and getting paid like $250 a ton. So start doing the math on that. It starts becoming a very, very big number. And for people who read me, you know that I'm very heavy in that California story with carbon credits. My top growth stock for the year was Ametis. And they're sh- have they have a short interest of like 23%. And it looks like they're at the very front end of a short squeeze for a lot of the same reasons that he just discussed here with California Resources. So for folks who don't quite understand how this works is these companies are going to get paid for providing other companies with offsets for their carbon. So these companies, by taking in carbon or having renewable fuels or anything like that, that has an offset to the carbon, they can sell that. Well, the price of those credits plunged, got down to like $65. And recently, California which sets the rules and said, we're going to tweak the rules to push that back up. And their target price within two years is $250. So it, since they've just said that they were going to do it, which they're not doing until the summer, I think it's next month might be, might be July. I'm not sure it's June or July um, has gone from about $65 uh, per credit to it's a little over 90 right now, I believe, as we speak. So it's already moved up 30, 40, 50% just on the promise they were going to tweak those rules. Once those rules are tweaked, and as we know through various legislation at the federal level, uh, but also with the California regulations on top, companies that produce a lot of carbon are going to have to buy offsets or completely revamp their own equipment going to be cheaper in many cases and faster for them to buy the offsets for companies that can provide them with the credits against their carbon. So the upside on these kinds of stocks around the country, especially with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, really incentivizing them. um, And even the big oil companies are going to do well, or Chevron, Occidental, Exxon, they can all do this in Texas. There's going to be a lot of money. The companies that probably turn the biggest gains for you though as an investor are the little companies that aren't highly valued so you could buy exxon or chevron or occidental and i buy a lot of occidental i've been buying it for a couple years um is good however if you're looking for a big capital gain i think california resources which is one that we've looked at um and Ametis and you know pick your company if you can find one out there that's going to you know, all of a sudden start dropping all kinds of money to the bottom line. In most cases, that's not priced in right now, right? Almost everything in the large caps is priced in because that's a very efficient market. Small and mid caps, you're usually getting that value because it's not priced in. Any other thoughts about energy that you think are big themes for the next few years? Um, Look, I mean, uh, natural gas is in the the dumps right now, Uh, but, um, and inventories are high. But there's an awful lot of LNG that's going to start um, being exported. Um, you know, I think Europe dodged a bullet this past year, this past winter with a mild winter. Yep. And they basically shut in all of their high energy industri- industry. I don't think that Europe is going to be permanently shutting in their high high their their high energy uh, using industry forever. Yeah, I guess you could have another couple of warm winters in a row. 
Um, but if you don't, um, there's going to be an awful lot of demand for natural gas coming out of Europe. And, um, you know, I still like, so I, I, I am still, I still like natural gas plays um, and they've come down a lot. You just have to make sure like anything in it, in, in energy uh, that, you know, you're, you're buying, you're buying these things. You, you make your money in energy buying when, when everything's gone to hell, not when prices are high. So, you know, natural gas back to two bucks or 250 is uh, down to back to a, a relatively low level. Um, and, um, uh, you know, particularly when you start having these LNG uh, export facilities are going to start coming online. So I like natural gas, but yeah, you have to, you have to, you know, obviously pick your assets, pick your management teams carefully. So, yeah, I, I agree on Europe, what you yeah. said there. And I would throw in India. I think India is a catalyst for a lot of energy growth in the next several yeah. years uh, because they just can't transition fast enough. No, they, and uh, actually that's a great point. And, and India is actually, I think, I think India is now the largest um, importer of us propane right now. I think, yep. I think that's right. It, it is. And uh, look, they're, they're an awful, India has terrible pollution problems and a lot of it is caused not by um, heavy industry, frankly, a lot of it's caused by, People have ovens in their backyards that are fueled by coal or by dung. Yep. A much cleaner uh, propane is a is a cheap uh, replacement for both of those uh, fuels, and uh, you know it doesn't take much to distribute propane tanks with little burners attached to them. And so uh, that is a, a big initiative by the Indian government. I think it's going to continue to be a big initiative by the Indian government. See, what they need in India is there's an Ace Hardware by me that I just bought a new <laughs> propane Weber grill. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, man, I tell you what, that was a super interesting conversation uh, that we started oh, man, an hour and a half ago. I will definitely have to keep a closer eye on your articles. I know you're a little newer on the platform and man, pretty exciting things that you're talking about. I know that short investors should be interested in you for sure, but even people who just want to double check to see if there's a lot of risk to their dividend stocks. I mean, I think that that's a vital service here because on, on Seeking Alpha, there's a lot of dividend investors. You know, that's the last thing you want if you're a dividend investor is to see your dividend get cut. An awful lot. Not just yeah. because you get less income, but usually take a huge capital loss. Yeah, well, because if you, you know, like if you're the dividend investor and you're not getting the dividend, you sell the stock. So right. uh, I'm a, there's a, uh, there are, bond traders are colorful personalities and they have a lot of sayings. Most of them are, again, not, not acceptable, polite society. But, um, but one of them is um, the road to hell is paved with positive carry. <laughs> And uh, you know, positive carry for bonds is is the bond is the coupon that you earn owning the bond, and and I think you can uh, translate that to uh, to dividend stocks. You right. know, the hell is paved with the, the dividend yield, and um, yeah, to the extent anyone owns 3M because of the dividend, I think it's worth re-examining that strategy. Right. You know, another way that I would put that for people is that if you're buying a stock for the yield without looking at the actual valuation and the strength of the business, you're taking a huge risk. A, a thousand percent. Because a lot of these dividend stocks in a, in a no growth or slow growth environment 
cannot possibly sustain those dividends long-term. And if they have negative catalysts, like 3M seems to have, you know, it's, it's just even more dangerous. And uh, I will look forward to your uh, your newer articles. Fortunately or fortunately, uh, most people are going to have to uh, subscribe to Catalyst Hedge Investing to get the bulk of my new articles. But I'll still be putting out some on the